This is a podcast by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.sc. Hi, and welcome to this premiere of the Brennpunkt EU podcast. By students at Gothenburg University for students and anyone else curious about the EU. My name is Magdalena Jonsson and I'm your host today. I'm a student of European Studies and a member of Brennpunkt Europa. And my name is Caroline Vanek. I'm your co-host and I'm also a member of Brennpunkt Europa and a master's student in European Studies as well. A few words about Brennpunkt Europa to begin with. It has been a student-run organization since 2012 in cooperation with Center for European Studies and Center for European Research, organizing events with politicians, scholars and other experts on European Union-related topics. This podcast is one part of Brennpunkt Europa's activities and we will invite experts to discuss the EU from different angles. With us today is Erik Röber, Associate Professor of History at Gothenburg University. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners a little? All right. I'm a senior lecturer and Associate Professor of History that has recently taken up a position uh, here at Gothenburg University. I did my PhD studies in Umeå where I became a PhD of history in 2011. I wrote about the Greek-Macedonian conflict in the early 1990s for my PhD. And I have been specializing in the history of modern Greece and Turkey. That sounds really interesting. Today, we're also going to talk about EU history. In today's episode, the very first episode, we'll put the European Union in a historical context and dive into the history of Europe. So let's start, Erik. We often only talk about current EU policies or news. Why is it also important to look at the EU from a historical perspective? Because those EU policies and the EU institutions and everything about the European Union, none of it exists in a historical void. Everything has a past. And in order to understand why things are happening the way they are happening nowadays, you need a historical perspective to see where it all came from. Yes, and we are so glad to have you here to get some clarity. <laughs> um, the dream of a Europe united, Erik, it's as old as Europe itself, isn't it? It depends on how old you think that Europe is. But there are, of course, some cornerstones in the building of a European identity which have evolved slowly uh, for centuries. In the beginning, we have the Roman Empire, which did not itself have any conception about Europe or European identity. You were a citizen of the Roman Empire and nothing else. However, the idea of the Roman Empire became a cornerstone uh, of later European identities because it represented a moment when most of what we think today of as Europe was united in one state. The term Europe, Yes. when did it evolve? 
Originally, it was a geographic term used by Greek geographers uh, in the 5th century BC or even earlier. Uh, it was purely a geographical concept. They talked of Europe, Europa, and Asia. Sometimes also adding Libya, which meant Africa at the time. There was no strong sense of identity, cultural identity, tied to these geographic terms. They, they just came in handy. Uh, the term Europe became more common in the um, um, early modern era. So the 16th and 1700s. It was picked up by enlightenment thinkers uh, who did not subscribe to traditional notions of Christendom as the cornerstone of their identity. Instead, they talked about Europe. So it acquired a kind of more secular meaning that was not attached to the Christian religion. Another turning point in European history was the French Revolution. It sparked a movement and new ways of thinking across the continent. What did the French Revolution mean for the idea of a Europe or even a united Europe? Well, the French revolutionaries, notably the one called the Girondists, uh, started a war against the European monarchs in 1792, which they presented as some kind of... Uh, crusade for the liberation of Europe from the tyranny of monarchy. So there was a kind of pan-European rhetoric uh, inherent in the French Revolution. Uh, if we take a look at the Declaration of Human Rights from 1789, one of the most sacred documents of that revolution, uh, it doesn't really talk as much about the rights of Frenchmen. They talk about universal rights of man. So here is a notion of something bigger than the state of France. Uh, however, they did not really see the difference between Europe and their own national French interests. Uh, this uh, war for liberty uh, was really a war for, for the territorial expansion of France. And Napoleon Bonaparte inherited this war from the French Republic. Uh, he was one of the, their most successful generals who eventually became the dictator of France and made himself the emperor of France, eventually marrying himself into the Habsburg family in, a, in an attempt to establish a dynasty of his own. So Napoleon's empire was a kind of pan-European empire in the sense that he had united huge chunks of Europe by force. But herein lay also the seeds of destruction, because the French imperialism triggered off uh, the nationalism of the Germans and several other movements who grew in opposition to the French claims of universalism. We are jumping a little bit in time on the timeline here. Uh, if we move on to the interwar years, quite large step. <laughs> uh, 
Although there were ideas of a united Europe already in the inter interwar years, why do you think these ideas were not able to take form then? Well, there had been some ideas of a united Europe even before World War I, uh, but these were kind of more intellectual fantasies. There were also ideas about economic cooperation, custom unions between certain countries. But the very idea of a pan-European cooperation only took form in the 1920s with the experience of World War I in fresh memory. Uh, we have the important figure of Aristide Briand, uh, the French foreign minister, who was very busy trying to establish pacts and treaties about uh, non-aggression and uh, outlawing war between states as a means of solving uh, as a means of solving disputes. Uh, there was also the pan-European movement of. Um, uh, one, what was it? Gudenhuve Kalergi. Do you remember his name? I don't remember. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, so th those two were sort of the leading stars uh, of the pan-European idea. Uh, however, there was the problem of the legacy of uh, the war, the Great War. The plans for um, European cooperation sort of stumbled on the issue of wartime reparations from Germany uh, during the war uh, or well the the idea of Germany's national guilt for the war those issues were kind of resolved towards the mid 1920s uh, with the signing of the uh, Locarno treaties and the Dawes plan uh, which was an American attempt to kickstart the German economy to sort of bypass this issue of uh, reparations. It did stimulate the German economy and as a result of that also nourished these ideas of Europeans coming together until the great crash of 1929 which ruined everything really and sort of prepared the ground for Hitler's Machtübernahme in Germany. Why did fascism and Nazism uh, win over these ideas of a united Europe? Well, fascism presented itself as an alternative to liberal democracy. When the Great Depression came, it sort of crushed the illusion of liberal democracy because most liberal governments did not know how to handle this economic crisis. They had very little ideas about social welfare policies, for example, because of their economic doctrine that the state should stay away from, uh, from the eco national economy as much as possible. Problem about uh, the pan-European movement is that it has never been a mass movement. It sort of requires a certain um, educational foundation to have that vision of Europe coming together. It is far more easier to identify with your own nation state and especially with the experience of this war and the bitterness it, it created. It was sort of, it had a larger appeal to mm. European publics at the time. 
And I think especially when also looking at Nazi Germany, one has to say that German democracy back then, the Weimar Republic, the Weimar democracy, basically was Germany's first democracy. And although it was the the constitution itself was very well executed for the time, at least in my opinion, um, it still wasn't enough. Like there were still enough loopholes for Hitler to gain power in, in a legal way. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to add that point. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, the idea of a liberal parliamentarian democracy was rather new at the time. You have to remember that a lot of states did not introduce universal suffrage before 1918. Uh, so that means that there was no long established uh, tradition of political compromise uh, in these societies. Germany had a long authoritarian tradition uh, from Prussia, which was very much alive in the 1920s. It was also nourished by the resentment uh, for the harsh terms of the Versailles Peace Treaty which a lot of Germans, not only the national conservatives and nationalists, were upset about. There were very few defenders of the Versailles Peace Treaty in Germany at the time. So, unfortunately, we know today that it took another world war for France and Germany to reconcile. And... Um, that's why we're also jumping to the after-war years. Um, the EU started in 1952 as the European Coal and Steel Community. What was Europe like at that time after World War II? Well, to begin with, we have the um, uh, division of Europe into a Soviet sphere of interest. Uh, which was in Eastern and Central Europe. And then we have the parts of Western Europe that has been liberated by the United States and Great Britain and the Free French Forces. So that sort of set the scene for post-war Europe, which parties would be able to join uh, European cooperation and which were not. The idea of a united Europe sort of evolves uh, out of concrete measures from the Americans uh, in, in the shape of the Marshall Aid uh, presented in 1947-1948 uh, named after George C. Marshall. The general idea of that was that the United States much as it had done in the 1920s with the Dawes Plan uh, would offer European states um, very, very generous loans that they were supposed to be able to use to start their economies working again after the war. The general idea of Marshall and other American politicians was that this would help prevent a new war because they feared the re-emergence of some kind of fascist movement, especially in defeated Germany, which was divided into four uh, zones of occupation, each one assigned to one of the four victorious powers, meaning that there was a Soviet uh, zone uh, in the east, 
that later became the Eastern Germany. Uh, it also has to do with the question of what to do with Germany. Uh, most people realized that the occupation by the Allies could not continue indefinitely. So that meant that they would have to reintegrate Germany into uh, some kind of normal relations with other European states sooner or later. Uh, but this problem was compounded by the emergence of the Cold War, um, which meant that it was impossible to reunite Germany. Uh, the Soviet raised demands for a neutral uh, Germany that would sort of sit between Western American-dominated Europe and his own sphere of interest. Uh, this conflict was compounded by the communist takeovers around different states in Eastern Europe in the years 1947 and 1948. Uh, these countries were occupied by the Red Army, but initially Stalin had allowed so-called popular front governments to be in government. It was a clever ruse. Uh, Stalin forbade uh, these governments uh, in that part of Europe which he controlled to receive any of the martial aid because he understood that the, the martial aid would make them economically dependent of the United States, not of the Soviet Union. So the EU itself um, proclaims them to be a peace project, but actually from the very first beginning it was more of an economic project. The two things go together. This is in line with uh, the Marshall Plan and the American wishes, is that if you make these two countries, the former enemies, France and Germany, economically dependent of each other, and then if you have some kind of binational higher authority that controls this coal and steel thing, they can't start a war against each other because they are too closely economically interwoven with each other. The initiative to the EU was actually taken by the French foreign minister, whose name was Robert, Robert Schumann. Schumann. Yes. <laughs> and why came, did the initiative came from France? Well, it has to some extent to do with uh, Schumann's personal background. Uh, the idea was actually from his economic advisor, Jean Monnet. Uh, but Schumann himself had a personal interest here. He was from Alsace-Lorraine, uh, formerly Elsass-Lothringen. So he was born a German citizen. Uh, he only became a Frenchman uh, in 1919 <laughs> as a result of... Oh of uh, Germany being forced to cede Alsace-Lorraine back to France. That's interesting. So that means that he had one leg in Germany and another one in France. He spoke both German and French. So he was sort of ideally situated to be the one that suggests this kind of cooperation and to gain the trust of the Germans. So he reached out to uh, the German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, who was from the Rhineland, that is very close to France and Alsace-Lorraine. Yeah, he actually was mayor of Cologne yes. twice, 
before the war and then after. Before the war, short side story, before the war he was um, um, mayor of Cologne, but then was basically kicked out by the Nazis. And then after, he was mayor very shortly, very briefly, before he was dismissed by the British. And then he turned towards um, national politics and eventually would become Germany's first chancellor. Yes, he was actually the sort of person that the Americans wanted to be in charge of the new German state because he had anti-Nazi credentials. He was reliably right-wing and conservative, but he was not tainted of having been a member in the Nazi party. So he was the ideal anti-communist without having been a Nazi. Uh, Adenauer was a Christian Democrat. Uh, he, he was a Catholic, just like Robert Schumann, uh, who was a fervent believer uh, in Roman Catholicism. So they had that in common as well. Uh, to this power couple, we have a third person, uh, the Italian Prime Minister, Alcide de Gasperi, uh, who was also, being Italian, Catholic. He was a Christian Democrat as well. He was also from the northern part of Italy, uh, where he had been born an Austrian citizen. Uh, the part of Tyrol that was ceded to Italy in 1918. So he too had a connection to the German-speaking world. It means that when these three gentlemen met each other, they would have conversations in German with each other. And when Schumann came with this offer to Adenauer, Adenauer jumped at it because it meant that finally the other kids want to play with us again. <laughs> this is the breakthrough we have been waiting for. Wow. So he eagerly takes this position. A lot of other countries, uh, such as um, Belgium and the Netherlands, were also early players. They had um, been working on a custom union of the Benelux countries in the years leading up to 1950. But they were very wary about uh, a resurrected Germany. Of course, especially the Netherlands had uh, very important economic ties to Germany, but they were afraid of or sort of enthusiastic about uh, having to be live as neighbors with this resurrected West German state. Uh, however, uh, of course, France's commitment to this idea was reassuring to them, but they would have preferred Great Britain to be part of this. And this That's is the reason why France takes the lead. But the, the Great Britain didn't approve. They didn't want to join the this union. Or this early union, maybe, yeah. is the right term. Why was that? Yes, why was that? Considering that Winston Churchill had been one of the first advocates of a united Europe, uh, so to say. Mm -hmm. Uh Churchill, however, lost the election in 1945, so he was sort of out of the picture. He became prime minister again in the early 1950s. 
but the problem was the attitudes of the British public uh, at the time. Uh, it had to do with the notion of the British imagining themselves as an empire that is detached uh, from the troubles of the continent. This is sort of a, a British reflex towards everything European that yeah. sort of keep it at a distance uh, that very much fed into the Brexit referendum in 2016. Yeah, another instance um, where we can see that history is connected like all throughout like the past and today and even decisions that are quite current. Definitely. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the Brexit referendum did not come out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, it reflects an uneasiness towards things uh, among the Brit- things European among the British that was there from the beginning. When did uh, Britain join the EU? When was that again? Uh, was in, in the seventies. In nineteen seventy-three. Yeah. Yes. And why? Well, we are getting a little bit off the topic here. But why did they change their mind? Do you think? And to to join it. It had to do with the sorry state of the British post-war economy. Uh, around 1950, they, the British still had an empire. It was officially known as the British Commonwealth, uh, but uh, the most many British people used the shorthand empire. Uh, but that meant that post-war Britain Uh, had become an impoverished country in 1945 because they had really invested everything they had and borrowed hugely from the United States uh, in order to be able to wage this war against Nazi Germany. So that means that they were impoverished uh, because of World War II in 1945. They still had this notion of themselves as a great power They still had this huge colonial empire in East Asia and in Africa. Uh, you have the administration of all these colonies. It's, it's a huge burden on Britain's economy. But for psychological reasons, most British did not want to give this up. That meant that they, they were more interested in their own commonwealth than being part Uh, of uh, a sort of European community that would eventually evolve into a united Europe. Europe was there for the taking for France, which emerged as the leader of this movement. And even today we speak of a French-German motor. A lot of times I think that's a term that's been used a lot. And I think one could even argue that although the British have decided to exit the European Union, it doesn't seem that they're better off without the EU. So, No, but the problem started before Brexit as well, but that is a... Uh, that might be a topic for another time think and so. another episode. Yes. Yeah, well, currently we're seeing populist parties to the extreme right gaining popularity in most EU member states. How would you say it could affect the EU and future Europe considering Europe's history. Is there a threat the history could be kind of repeated? Uh, there is always the threat because uh, these parties are Eurosceptics by their nature. 
they are nationalistic. Uh, a lot of them wanted to exit uh, Europe, the European Union, uh, before, but now they have sort of changed tactics. To better sort to of stay in and uh, yes, and, and uh, remold the European Union Union in your from inside in your image, so yes. to say. So the the danger that I see is that a lot of these parties have ties with Moscow and Putin's regime there. Oh. Uh, so he is sort of the he has been the benefactor of that. He has channeled funds to uh, uh, Marine Le Pen's party uh, in France. It did become a huge embarrassment to Marine Le Pen when Russia invaded Ukraine and uh, European public opinion turned against Russia. Oh, I get goosebumps. <laughs> uh, yes, that is a scary thing to think about. Yes. Uh, we also need to think that these European populist right-wing parties that we hear about, uh, about they are not they are not one on, and the same. It really depends on which country we are talking about. Uh, we have for example the, um, uh, the right-wing government in Poland that has recently lost the election but the the president, Andrzej Duda, who belongs to that party, PiS, uh, he is trying to sabotage the forming of a new government and trying to sort of keep this PiS party of his in power. Uh, they are close allies, or they have traditionally been close allies of Viktor Orban's illiberal uh, Fidesz party in Hungary which is very pro-Russian. But peace is not pro-Russian because it is a Polish nationalist party. It tends to define itself in opposition against Russia, but also in opposition against uh, Germany for historical reasons. So that means that the peace politician rails against, against Moscow and against Berlin at the same time. It has chosen a different path in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, until recently they were very, very much in favor of sending arms uh, to uh, the Ukrainian defense. Poland. Uh, yes, Poland did that until right before the recent election when they realized that the, the farmers who are the backbone of their party are very upset about Ukrainian grain coming in. Uh, the, the competition with Polish agricultural produce. So that may, meant that they had to create a distance to Kiev. Um, yeah, so we're seeing that obviously right wing movements across Europe still are a threat to our European democracies. Um, which leads me to our final question, which is what kind of actor has or what kind of power do you think the EU has in nowadays geopolitical, very divided world? Well, the European Union tries to be or become a global actor. Uh, the problem is that... There can never really be a European United States, such as there is a United States of America. 
The European Union consists of several different nations with widely diverging uh, geopolitical interests. And that is the Achilles heel of the European Union. Putin's Russia was very skilled in sort of using this division to its advantage by seeking to establish trade deals with individual uh, EU member states rather than with the EU as a whole. That is why they courted Germany as the most important member state in the European Union. So Tra- making them dependent uh, on... Sort of establishing this Gazprom uh, deal with the natural gas flowing from Russia uh, into Germany uh, on very fam- favorable economic terms initially until the autumn of 2021 when Putin was building his war chest. The huge mistake that German politicians and also other EU politicians made was thinking about how the European Union came into being through making France and Germany economically interdependent of each other. They had this idea that if we have economic relations that make Russia and the EU economically interdependent of each other, Russia will sort of see the the wisdom of the European ID and it will evolve into some kind of democracy. This was a grave miscalculation because that meant that they had totally misread Putin and his perception of history. Putin is a kind of 19th century pre-1914 European power player and imperialist. The idea of Europe being several great powers or the world being several great powers uh, fighting each other in some kind of zero-sum game for geopolitical influence, that is uh, his conception of of things. So the invasion of Ukraine became a rude awakening for the European Union because it meant that this foundational myth of how the EU came into being, it doesn't apply to the relation uh, with Russia. Uh, It cannot work if the other one, the one that you try to establish as a partner, if that is an authoritarian, anti-democratic regime, there is really no precondition for, for a healthy relationship. Yeah, and I think also that's one of the reasons why the EU is currently reevaluating its actorness in the world and what kind of actor it wants to be. Because, of course, it's a norm-based actor, but on the other hand, our world has changed. The EU's immediate neighborhood has changed. There are so many more security concerns that haven't been there maybe pre-2014 when Russia... and Annexed Annexed Crimea. Exactly. But I also, although this is a really interesting topic, I think this must uh, be discussed in another episode. I think it's time to wrap things up, don't you think, Magdalena? Yes, I think so too. Me and Caroline have enjoyed talking to you, Eric, and thank you very much for your expertise and your time. Thank you for having me. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to your monthly dose of Europe, a Brennpunkt Europa podcast. This was our first episode. Stay tuned for the next. 
Until then, stay engaged, stay informed. And take care. Bye bye. This is a podcast by Brennpunkt Europa and K103 Gothenburg's Student Radio. You've just heard a podcast by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.